Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. We're following breaking news right now in Orange County where Orlando police have confirmed there's been a shooting in downtown Orlando at the Pulse nightclub. After the massacre, Roger Jimenez argued that Orlando is safer because gay people were killed. Here's what he said in his sermon. As Christians, we shouldn't be sitting there and say like, whoa, that's a tragedy or whoa, that's a, that's a bad thing or, or we're upset or we're mourning or, or we're, you know, something needs to be done about this. As Christians, we shouldn't be mourning the death of these 50 sodomites. You say, well, why is that? Here's why that is, because the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that these sodomites are all, every single one of them, a predator. What if you ask me, hey, are you sad that 50 pedophiles were killed today? Um, no, I think that's great. I, I think that helps society. You know, I think Orlando, Florida is a little safer tonight. Now that 50, you know, the tragedy is that more of them didn't die. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. We opened this episode with a clip from Pastor Roger Jimenez. He is notorious. He runs the Verity Baptist Church in Sacramento, California. And on today's episode, we're going to get some insights on him that you probably haven't heard before. Today's guest is Stephanie, and she is an absolutely amazing guest. We got to connect here in person in Vegas. 
So we actually recorded this dialogue face-to-face. It was absolutely amazing. And she was so transparent and forthcoming about her story. She talked about areas in which uh, the people around her, especially those within the church, just let her down in times where, as a young child, she needed to be protected. There were so many situations in her story where if one person had taken the right step, so many pains and traumas could have been avoided. Uh, I, I really appreciate Stephanie sitting down with me on this episode, and I know you'll appreciate the insights that she brings to the show as well. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and dive right into that conversation. And remember, if you want to take this conversation beyond the episode, if you feel like you've got something you want to chime in, or if you relate to something in this story, be sure to connect with the Preacher Boys official discussion group over on Facebook. There are so many people in there that have experienced abuses and trauma within the independent Baptist movement, and I know they would love to welcome you in and discuss with you. But for now, here's my interview with Stephanie. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Awesome, Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. Even though you swore you would never come on the show. I did. I <laughs> swore to everyone. This. I would never do this. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited you're on. Obviously, we know each other through Jackie, whose episode will drop sometime on the show in the near future. But tell me a little bit about your introduction to the Independent Baptist Movement. Like, How did that, that kind of kick off? So our family has been involved in church since the beginning. So we were born into church. We, I was born in Roseburg, Oregon. And we started attending Victory Baptist Church. It was under Pastor, I think his name was Witt, and then eventually Pastor Cavanis took over. And that's who we were under when we were going to church. There was Pastor Cavanis. Yeah. I'm always interested because I think a lot of people, when they listen to interviews on the show, who are against the show or people who are looking to poke holes tend to think that people that come on like hated church when they were younger and they've been looking for a reason to talk right. about it. So I'm always curious, what was your early experiences in the church? Were they positive memories, negative? What were those first years? Mine's the opposite. That's one reason I didn't want to come on. Cause I was really nervous about portraying that it was always negative mm. because it wasn't. No. Um, my earliest memories were great. It was family. We were at the church three day, three times a week, at least at minimum. And then there was the potlucks and we, it was very family oriented. And I feel like it was a very good experience. There's always, you always feel like there's better on the other side. So I always felt like maybe we were missing out, but at the, when it came down to it, there was our little family and we always, we would go on in church groups and outings and it was really fun. I really did enjoy my time in the church. Was this your family's, like, were they all new to church or was this something like it was, you were a couple generations in? No. So my mom grew up Southern Baptist and my dad was Catholic. So he was actually like an altar boy. So I honestly don't know what made them come to the terms of the independent Baptist movement. I don't know exactly what led them to that. I think it may have been their location. So they lived right across the street from Victory Baptist Church. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so it may I, just been convenience exactly. with kids. And you my know. brother was going to kindergarten at that time. He was just starting kindergarten and there was a kindergarten school there. So yeah. he went to school there and I think it just turned into my parents going to church there. And was this church purely independent Baptist or were they connected like new independent Baptist or that they wasn't even independent fundamental? Gotcha. Yeah. Full, <laughs> full blooded <laughs> independent, full Baptist. independent Baptist. Okay. Gotcha. So I know from talking a little bit beforehand, like, some of the traumas you experienced were very early on and a little bit different than some of the stories in that, like the earliest ones aren't really remembered by you. We found out about later, but can you talk a little bit about those experiences and how they shaped 
the trajectory kind of moving forward? Yeah. When I was three years old, a situation had happened with my dad and it was taken to the pastor of the church, which was Pastor Cavanis. And it was a situation that should have, it should have been taken care of by a mandatory reporter. That was a good place to take it. And my mom and took it to him in confidence that it would be taken care of. And the direction that she was given was with prayer and a lot of faith, we can work through the situation. So I feel like that was the start of maybe the domino effect of what happened later through my experience with church and with things that happened in church. If that would have been taken care of properly, possibly it could have stopped this entire thing from happening, the entire situation. Yeah. Yeah. The whole series of events post that. Yeah. So now looking back in retrospect, obviously at the time there's effects that happen. You don't remember it at the time clearly, but finding out now and looking back on this, what are the emotions you feel around knowing how this was handled, knowing that the church and even family, that feeling of betrayal or not handling it the way that it probably should have been disappointed and like bad for myself, honestly, like I feel bad because I couldn't imagine being in a leadership position and knowing something like that and not taking every effort to protect that person, much less a child who didn't even have a voice at that time. And if it would have been dealt with properly, possibly my mom could have gotten a different direction and known what to do to handle the situation better rather than running to another church in hopes yeah. that they're going to protect as well. Because that is what the church leads you to believe is that they have the best thoughts for your kids, but that's not necessarily yeah. true. They're not there to protect them all the time. And they don't always have what's best in mind for the kids. Well, you're taught they have all the answers yeah. when they're not qualified to handle certain situations. They serve their purpose. But with, when it comes to, like you said, reporting, when it comes to like law enforcement should be handling that stuff, not the pastor. So with that situation, was that a one and done instance? And it just was quiet after that. Did this continue on throughout? No, it was the one and done situation. And then shortly after that, we moved to Sacramento in 1996. So I was about six years old when we moved there. The church was super small at the time. We were one of the starting families, I think, probably 20 people in the whole church. We were renting out a building in a strip mall and my parent, my dad helped pastor Nichols and they found a church building and they bought the church building pastor did. And that's where Regency was founded. I think it was probably 1997 or 98 when they finally moved into the building, their final building. So now we're at the point where you're building those initial memories. Do you remember the transition from going from victory to Regency? Was there a noticeable shift or was it more of the same in a different spot? Um, So it definitely was a little bit more memorable because there's, I think there was 10 of us all together that were all super close in age. That kind of does play key in the story because there was 10 kids that through the, in the entire school church and that that grew up together from 1996 to 2001 
1997, maybe there was only 12 kids in the entire school, high school or, or kindergarten to high school. Wow. And most of, of the 10 of us were young. And so we all grew up together. We were best friends. So it was always, it wasn't just church. It was my friends too, but it was fun because we did Awana and we did all the fun stuff that you get to do with your friends, but it was also learning about God. So that's what made it so fun too. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought my school was small because we had 160 from K5 to 12. But yeah, I resonate with that too, as I grew up with four or five of the same kids that went through kindergarten through most of high school. And then it would shift in and out a little bit with different right. people. But that's one of the things where I always say, like, I have to give the positive memories credit to is like, right. there's all those relationships and growing up in the weird small bubble, there's benefits like that where you build those close relationships. Sure. So those were all pretty positive memories. Now, obviously looking back and I always with these conversations, it obviously wasn't sunshine and roses throughout the entire experience. Was there, was there a certain point that you look back and say, okay, that was the first red flag of this church I should have noticed, or, or maybe that's not a good, a good responsibility to put on you as a kid, but <laughs> The first red flag that you wish you would have noticed at that time. Like at, in 1996, like when we moved there or? Yeah. As you were growing up in that church, like it was positive. Was there a point in which it stopped be, being positive? Yeah. I think actually when I really started to express who I was, probably 10, 11, I remember we would always go to Six Flags every year for our end of the year field trip. And Pastor Nichols, who was the pastor since we grew up with him, he was almost like an uncle. I just really all but worshiped him. He was preacher. And so right. I, I loved him. And I remember we went to Six Flags and I had got, I won a, one of those stretchy ankle bracelets and I wore it and he called me over and it was in front of his two sons who I, of course, was like had the biggest crush on and never wanted them to think bad of me. And he called me over and he said, why are you, why do you have that on your ankle? And I said, Oh, I just want it. And he goes, that's the attire of a harlot. Take it off. And just remembering I, he didn't understand like how detrimental those words were to me at yeah. 10 years old. Like at number one, I didn't really know what that was. I just knew it, the way he looked at me and said it and told me, take it off now. Yeah. I just felt so disgusted. And I feel really from that time on, I feel like I was always the person that was asking questions. I was always the person that was going to be the one who was going to cause ruckus. I was that girl that wanted to know why we were doing it. I wanted to, I didn't want to stand in line. We weren't in elementary school. So when they made us stand in line with our toes, butted up to the next person's toes, I would always stand sideways. But why? Because I didn't understand why we had to do that. We weren't in military school. So it probably was unnecessary, but I just always was the one bucking authority. So I feel that from then on, from that time forward, it was almost, it was just, I don't even know how to explain it. It was pretty negative after that. I feel from then on, it was one thing or another. And that's where the, you know, start of the story is in 2001, there were a couple that came to our church, their names, they came to our church and they had two younger brothers and they came from San Leandro in the Bay area and they were put into our school. And when you, like I said, grow up with 10, 12 kids in a school and there's two new people in school, it's a very earth shattering thing for the yeah. entire school in like every sense. They're two teenage boys. So they were 15 and 16 at the time. And I think that the oldest girl, there was one senior girl, but the, the oldest girl was probably 13 in the yeah. group that they were going to be 
around because in a small school like that, and I think this is important to know too, there wasn't like an older group that did things and a younger group. No, it's just a communal thing. Yep. Once you were, I think you had to be 11 and a half to start going to youth activities. Then you could, then everyone was together from 11 to 17. So everyone was together at all times. And so I really feel that's when I felt really betrayed by the church because when they came now looking back, it just, it was such an unsafe, unprotected environment. And that was such a red flag that every person there should have seen. And they did, but for what reason? So they cannot get kicked out of school. Let's put them in this precious little Christian school with 12 kids. When you say they saw the red flags, what do you mean? They got kicked out of a public school in San Diego and in San Francisco. So the red flags were, these probably aren't the best boys. If they're coming from a public high school and getting kicked out of there, they're probably not the best to be unleashing in this school of 12 people. Mostly or there was seven girls that were little girls, hyper sheltered. Like we had never been around anyone else besides those few people. We didn't have TVs, how the whole, you know, work is we weren't allowed to watch movies. We didn't have internet. It was very secluded and sheltered. We knew nothing outside of the walls of that church in our homes. Never. We weren't even old enough to go to like fine arts and stuff. Wasn't even a thing then we weren't going to youth activity or like North Valley's uh, youth conference. We weren't doing any of that. We were just a small, tiny school. And when they let them in, I, I just stuff just started happening directly after they were in. So I feel like the red flags were all the adults knew that what a chance, a gamble they were taking, letting these two boys into a school, such protected, sheltered children. Aside from just there being new people, how did this kind of disrupt the ecosystem of your bubble? So of course they were very friendly to us girls. And that was something that all of us little girls were just smitten with. And I say little because the youngest girl was probably nine and the oldest was 12. Well, and a 12 in the IFB is like a seven-year-old, you know, absolutely. I'm glad you referenced that because we were so immature and sheltered that it, what we had such a small mindset and they were obviously not from a sheltered environment mindset. They were public school in the Bay area. So they were very well, introduced to the world at this point from us who have never even seen a G movie to putting these boys in our school where they were very well exposed to adult situations. Yeah. Obviously them being very flirtatious at at that point, did anybody ever call that out or identify that or. So it was very, and that's what started. It was very subtle. So he would Roger specifically would write me little letters and put them in my Bible. Praying for you today. Hope you have a great day. You look very beautiful, by the way. And that's how it started. It wasn't because he probably knew that as an 11-year-old, I was terrified. I will never forget, you know, the first time we I was on my first youth activity. It was my first youth activity. I was so excited. We were playing capture the flag. We were way out in the middle of the woods. And I'll never forget, he came up behind me and touched my back. Hmm. And I just remember thinking like, I was so sad because I just knew like I was not, that was not supposed to happen. I knew that was so wrong. But on the other hand, like, I just remember thinking like, oh my word, why does he, why is he touching my back? He was so much older and I didn't know, but I was special and, but I knew it was really wrong, but it was, he, they were very subtle. They didn't come in like roaring lions taking (laughs) over. They were, they they played the game and that's, what's so hard too is because they were smoozers. Like they would definitely worked their way into being alone in situations with little girls many times mm. because they were trustworthy. So 
they're obviously a lot older. These are like 15, 16. How old was Roger? He was 15 at the time. When he was 15 when and you were, 11, you were 11. 11? Yeah. With that age gap, do you think some of the, the past experiences you'd had like with your dad, did you, were you looking for relationships like with older male figures? Was that something that was coming into play? Like, obviously you probably don't realize this at the time, right. but in retrospect, do you think that had an effect on how you reacted and responded to that attention? Yeah, absolutely. Daddy issues are a real thing. It sounds cliche and and people joke around about it, but absolutely. I feel like I was craving that attention and obviously I didn't know at that time because I was 11, yeah. but I definitely wanted someone to tell me I was pretty and wanted to, someone to be proud of me. I wanted that attention and I knew it was wrong because I knew that I wasn't supposed to have that. I wasn't supposed to enjoy having that attention, but I did. I enjoyed feeling like I was needed, feeling like I wasn't always doing something wrong. It was positive attention rather than the negative attention that I was always fighting for, which in my little mind, I didn't know why I was being rebellious, why I was acting out because I was just trying to be 11 years old, but yeah. there were so many big girl things going on in my head that I didn't understand, which is where the church could come in and really help you realize that there's something wrong with this little girl there. She's yeah. screaming for attention. Why is she always in trouble? Why she's been in the same group? Okay. Now we see that there is these two new boys and we're seeing that they're honing in on these certain three girls. Why? Mm-hmm. And Roger was really close to my brother. And I think that that was such a big thing too, because when they came in, it was also a big deal for my brother because he was so excited to have a friend and they honed in on that hardcore. They would want to come over. They would make it all in the name of my brother. But in reality, it was really just a way to come over and be a grooming for lack of better. It was a way for them to come over and groom because for the first three to five months, that's, or I should say about three months, that's what it was. It was purely grooming and just these rules are silly and they say these things. They It's because you're older and that's not what it means, but you're getting older and the church is just protecting you because they were, or Roger was specifically, he was trying to get me to not feel so guilty because I really did. I always, every altar, I, at this point, nothing had happened. We were just talking, but the letters I knew I shouldn't be writing a man letters and I shouldn't enjoy this, but I did. And past the, they did eventually find a couple of the notes and it was brought to the church's attention and they knew yeah. That they were, that he was preying on these little girls. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's one of those things like that's where when it comes to an 11 year old, because I think sometimes people, even when we're talking about 15, 16 year old girls, which again, in that world is yeah. so young, people always go, did they know what they were doing was wrong? And I think that's, it's such a weird question to me to ask because understanding something and knowing how to handle what you're first of all, you don't understand, like like you said, like all the things that even now you're still realizing like, Oh, this led to this. And this emotion is what made me open to this or this situation. There's not that account of responsibility there to try to figure those things out. Like you said, the church stepped in at some point, especially when finding notes or finding this happening, 
should have stepped in and said, okay, what's going on? We need to talk about it. When the stuff was found, when these notes are found, what was the response of the church? Was it just, oh, you're in trouble? (laughs) Yeah, it was always a meeting. So it was, and this is also bizarre to me. And it just goes to show you how much in control the church was of these situations because they would, we would always go in. It would be me. His parents spoke Spanish. So he, they had to have a translator, which was his sister and her husband, which Mm -hmm. I didn't, which was unnecessary. The youth pastor, pastor's wife, his parents, and my parents in a big group every time. Mm. So that's how, and it was, why are you writing? Why were you writing notes? You like pretty much just the same thing every time. It's not right to be doing this, but it would, and then we would get suspended. So we get suspended. I think the longest we got suspended was for like three weeks one time because yeah. Did this keep progressing past notes? Was this always verbal? And as far as what the notes were saying, was it just like cheesy love notes or was it, was he pushing in a certain direction with these? So it was at first cheesy love notes. And then it started, he, it was a Wednesday night after church and he, we were over the church had a little separate house and he had asked me in my notes before to kiss me. And I had always told him that like, we had to wait till we got married. So I remember one of his notes, he asked me if I would marry him and that he had a plan, but I just had to trust him and that I needed to meet him in the church house after church one Wednesday night and that he would tell me what it was. Mm-hmm. So I did. And it was just him and I over there and he kissed me. And I just remember I, I was so sick and I was so scared. I just I thought I was pregnant. <laughs> I knew for sure. <laughs> I was so terrified and I knew I couldn't wear a white dress now. Just yeah, my little right. 11 year old mind thinking. And then he told me that he was going to get a pig and that we would get a fake passport and we would fly to Venezuela and he would marry me there. And I think that's probably what the last two months of our relationship was him trying to convince me to move to Venezuela at 11 years old because his uncle had land there and would let us live there. So I don't understand where the church could fall so short to not realize that is such a grooming thing to be saying to an 11 year old. Mm that maybe they should have stepped up before it got to that point to maybe dismiss him from the school because the letters were progressively getting worse or more aggressive, I should say, and more inappropriate. And then we ended up, he asked me to sneak out of his house, out of my house at 1am one morning. And I did. And I will never forget because my friend, I had a friend that was at the house and I felt so guilty after I got back and I was so scared And I remember telling him that I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was so scared of getting in trouble again. And I remember him telling me that I was just this, all of this was for nothing. And I pretty much can't remember the exact terms that he used, but I was used now. And mind you, we just kissed. That's all we did. But I was used now and that I just, I pretty much just was, that's it. Like if you don't, if we're not going to be together at 11, then I just, that's just, ugh. just pretty much the vibe was just like, I was just gross. No. And it was really scarring because at 11, you don't have, you can't see the future. So my world was over because I was used and gross and just like the way that adults treated me in the church. So different. These people that I respected so much, these people that I loved 
treated me so gross after this had come out because of course in a Baptist church, everyone talks. And so it was not long before everyone was praying for me, praying for me because they were so concerned, but so concerned to the fact that whenever that was over a month later, three months later, he's the lead of the bus ministry. They were so concerned. Why do you think there was so much, and this happens, and I ask about this all the time. Why do you think the penalties for you were so strict? The stigma around what you were doing was so strict, but for him, and it typically is this breakdown for her, it's yep. strict stigma. Yep. You're this and this, and for him, you're getting promoted. Yeah. Why do you think that? Why do you think that happens? I'll tell you why. I'll. The pastor told me at 11 years old. He stood up in my dad's face, a youth pastor. And he stood up in my dad's face and said, Mr. Gooden, if your daughter wasn't dressing so provocatively, she wouldn't be tempting the men. Yeah. And I feel like I shouldn't even have to preface this because I have an 11-year-old daughter and there should be absolutely nothing that's not an 11-year-old's responsibility in any way, shape, or form at all. But when we grew up in the kind of church that we grew up in and we had to wear skirts that were mid-calf and our shirts had to be, couldn't come lower than our collarbone and our shirts had to flap in the wind, that's a pretty absurd statement to say to an 11-year-old, but much less when you grow up in the Baptist church. So I'd absolutely know why. It's always because we were tempting. It falls down on I should have been more conscious of how I was acting around the men. Yeah. Which... I'm curious. I don't think we've, I don't think we've ever talked about it in this way. I've definitely talked about like purity culture. I think sexualizes women from early age girls from early age. Do you think that there's a correlation between the way that women are talked about and the actions that men in the church take? I don't want to take away any of the responsibility on the men's side for what they're doing because people grow up in the movement and don't do this stuff. So I don't want to give an easy out and say, Oh, you were taught this. When you have a youth pastor saying your 11 year olds dressing provocatively, I think it says more about the youth pastor than it does about the 11 year old girl. percent. It's a bigger problem in in the back of his mind clearly than it should have been in anyone else's. Did, Did you feel sexualized by the church leadership in the conversations around this? Cause it sounds like that keeps it's under the surface of a lot of these conversations and the way that it's being dealt with. For sure. I definitely feel that there was a lot of pressure on how we acted or how we dressed. I remember there was one time that pastor Nichols told me that I was acting like a dog in heat when Mm. I was around Roger and I have no, I didn't know what that was because they want us to, in the church, you were taught absolutely nothing about sex. You have no, it's not taught but it's something that you're supposed to want right after marriage, but it's also something you're never supposed to think about until marriage. Right. So you have this such this distorted view of what you're supposed to be feeling because yeah. these feelings happen, regardless yeah. if you want to acknowledge them or not, they're still happening. Yeah. And so instead of treating it in a responsible way with maybe talking to people personally and figuring out what these issues are, I don't know. I just... Yeah. How'd the situation with Roger come to a head? Because obviously you came to a spot where you're like, I can't do this anymore. This is terrifying. How did this have any resolution to it or was it? Not really. No, he, I, so shortly after the Roger situation happened, then his brother ultimately did pretty much the same thing for about the next eight months. Had a very, with with me. Yeah. He had a relationship, if you call it that. And he was 17 
and I had just turned 12. So I, it was the next year after that. So I was 12, he was 17 and it was more, I feel like I didn't have to deal with it then with the Roger situation, because I felt like it was almost like now as an adult, like a breakup and I was with his brother now. And Mm. so as like tainted and weird as that sounds, because I was so young, I feel like it just jumped from one to the other. But then Rod, Abraham and I got in trouble too. And right after that whole Abraham situation happened, we my parents moved. And Abraham's Roger's brother. Abraham okay. is Roger's brother. Yep. There was a situation with him in about eight months. That lasted for about eight months. And then when that happened, my parents moved from from Sacramento to Salem. So you're in Salem for two years and then you end up moving back to Sacramento. Sacramento. Okay. And you're around 13, 14 at that time. We moved back. I was 15. Okay. 15. So moving back, was that a weird experience going back? Because at that point they would have been 20. It was 2005. So yeah, we moved back in 2005, the year my brother graduated from high school. And so Abraham and Roger would be like 20, two, 22 ish. Yeah. Uh, What was the experience being back around them? It was really, it was so heavy. So Roger at that point, he was a pastor in Sacramento at that point. So it was just heavy and a lot. So he was already pastoring then. Is it the same church he's at now? I think so. Yeah, okay. I think so. Cause I think his church started in 2000, either five or six wow. so right th- during that time. And then his brother, Abraham came back. He was in the Navy and he came back and tried to pull the same stuff. Just tried to go back into the whole flirting routine. And I told him that I wasn't 11 anymore. And I, that was the first time that I like defended myself and stuck up for myself because because he was trying to be very controlling yeah he was definitely just trying to get me to fall back right back into what it was and i definitely wasn't where did that confidence to stand up for yourself at that point come from because you're still young and there's still a lot of pressure from someone that's six years older where did you find that or was it just exhaustion dealing with it no it was it was confident it was a protection honestly i think that i was dating someone pretty seriously at the time and i was really like very protective as silly as it sounds of my purity at that point Mm. because whenever i would think of my first kiss i hated to acknowledge that it was with roger because that's not a first kiss i didn't want that i was completely taken off guard and so i really felt like I just wanted to protect myself and I was so, I felt so disgusting because that's, that's the lingo that we are taught is you are a gross, dirty rag, right? If you sleep with someone before marriage or if you mess around with someone before marriage, they don't, like I said earlier, we don't talk about sex, but it's such a horrible thing. So if you think about that, you've done something like that, how would you not feel disgusting, whether it was wanted or not, because you don't talk about rape. You don't talk about consent or power because it's all just wrong. And so I did, I felt so wrong, but I knew at this point that I had someone go back to the daddy issues. I had someone to protect me that wasn't taking advantage of that because I really did hold my purity very close to me at that point with my boyfriend. And so if I wasn't going to allow him to even have that relationship with me, there's no way on earth that I'm going to allow you who has made me feel disgusting, have that control. And when he looked at me, he just looked at me like, just like, meh, whatever. And I just remember thinking like, you're such a pig. 
Yeah. Like I was like, I was such a little girl. And even at 15, yeah, still I was still little such girl. a little girl. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It, it's yeah. It, it's just crazy. The, the dynamic there and that you have to say, again, standing up for yourself. I'm not 11, like, right. <laughs> but I'm 15 right. in, in dealing with this. So now like, again, there's no real happy ending or closure to this. Now it's all you can do is look back and say, here's what happened. It's got to be very weird that Roger is now something of a celebrity and yeah. in his bubble of right. the, the new IFB. When you think about it now, years later, and you're looking back at it, what are you feeling now? As you're, Is it something that you think about regularly? Is it something that affects you now? Is it something that you think about it if someone brings it up? Like, That's where does this one. go in your day-to-day thinking? I think that it's such a, that's such a raw question. And to answer it honestly would be a lot, would be a big reason of why I came on this podcast was because I think about it a lot. I was such, and especially now I have an 11 year old and that's really what turned me to say something because I feel, I love your podcast and how it exposes these hidden things in the church and so many people are so taken back and so surprised by it, but really it's not something that's so surprising. And a a lot of the times it doesn't always have to just be a pastor or youth pastor. These boys, these older boys in this church or schools are getting put into these leadership positions and they're held on such a high pedestal that even they can't do any wrong, even if they have done wrong. So yeah, to answer your question, I do. I think about it a lot. It definitely, it tainted what I would have ever wanted my little child mind to put a healthy, to think of a healthy relationship. It tainted that it wasn't healthy. I've had to completely deconstruct my thinking of not feeling that it was my fault Mm -hmm. because I was made to feel like it was, and I'm not negating the fact that I was a willing participant, Mm -hmm. but now looking at my 11 year old child to say that she's a willing participant in a relationship with a 15, 16 or 17 year old is complete asinine. No, that is crazy. You don't. Well, willing and responsible again are two different things. So true. Very (laughs) true. But you won't, you do feel responsible too at that point. And when you're younger, because you're made to feel that way because it was my choice and I allowed it to happen. Do you still feel like you default? Cause this is something that is hard to explain, but there's a lot of things where in my subconscious, like I'll be sitting there and I'll just default to thinking, in a way where I'm like, oh, they're right. Or, oh, right. I'll default into what if I'm wrong? Or what if I'm this? Do you ever find yourself defaulting to, oh, I'm guilty or I'm I'm dirty or I'm this? Yeah. Or do you, is that your default mindset when you're just letting your mind wander? It was. Mm. It was until I about probably honestly a year ago <laughs> when I realized that my daughter was almost 11. Yeah. And it really all came to a head because I had thought and I've had friends tell me that were close to me at the time that it was something that you participated Mm -hmm. in. And I will fully admit that Mm -hmm. was something that I loved the attention of it, knowing whether it was wrong or right. It was the attention. But I don't know. Yeah, I was was curious about that because that's where I I find myself all the time, like just defaulting to like, what if they're right? (laughs) What if they're I, I, I 
think that's such a scarring thing with the church in general because I feel like I owe every part of my life listening to rock music. Like even words with GD in it. They What if they were right? What if they were right? I shouldn't be listening to this. Like any heavy feeling I get, what if they were right? Yeah. I had that feeling very strongly like uh, maybe six months into the podcast, maybe earlier. And I just was, I was sitting there, I think I was driving or I was either driving or sitting at my desk. I forget where, but I just remember sitting there and going, I started cycling through all these verses that they always said that people leave and they're angry and they're bitter and they're this and their conscience is seared and all these things. And I just remember thinking like, is that me? Is that, am I, cause I'm doing all the things they said I would do. Right? And, but it's such a funny thing is it's now understanding, like they anchor everything to where if you take any move against them. They've got this reason why you're doing it. It's already explained away, but it is. It's so hard to wipe away things that you were taught from the time you were like, I just don't know if you (laughs) can though. I don't know if you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of you. Yeah. I got to ask now, and I know we're at the end here, but I got to ask Roger's such an enigma to me because I see him obviously now knowing your story. It's interesting how quickly he was just handed to church. Do this. Obviously, he was not this spiritual messiah figure in high school. When I see guys like him or Steven Anderson or the other new happy guys who are these super hateful, angry, over the top, yeah, crazy leaders of these churches where they're hyper controlling and manipulative, what do you think is in it for them? Do you think they've come to a point like Roger, for example? coming out of public school, getting kicked out, going to this career. Do you think he eventually bought into it? Or do you think it's just an easy path to be, to have some semblance of control over something? I think it may be a little bit of both. I think that. Do you think he believes when he says everyone? Here's the weird thing though, is he was so messed up to begin with. There was a person that he was talking to and having relationships with a week before his marriage a younger girl who was not graduated high school yet. And then a week later he was getting married. And then not even a few months later, he was starting a church. And again, at 20 something talking to a teenage girl. Yeah. And I don't, I think that I feel like if you can be a predator in that way, where you spend a year and a half of your life preying on a child asking them to leave their country and move away to marry you. I feel like you can't go from mess that messed up to normal preaching to preaching against pedophiles. Yeah. Against (laughs) pedophiles. Yeah. Yeah. And literally saying the most hurtful, disgusting things that you could ever imagine about those people that every single person who affiliates with the LGBTQ community is a predator and that they are better off gone. Literally verbatim in his interview. That disgusts me. And that was a really big reason why I wanted to tell my story was because you don't get to destroy. I shouldn't say that. I'm not going to give him that gratification. You don't get to shape someone's life so detrimentally and not be held accountable. It was a a formative part of your development for better, in this case, for worse. I always talk at the end. I I like to ask two things. One where would you say you're at now? Like we've talked a little bit about just the healing of just sharing. And obviously when you have kids of your own, it brings up stuff. I know for me, it brought up stuff that was hard to talk about beforehand, but you just feel like you have to at this point. Would you say you're in a 
when it comes to healing or however you want to word it, do you feel like you're in a good place now? Do you feel like what's been the most helpful thing in recovering for lack of a better word? It's made me be more aware as a parent. Yeah. It's made me definitely question ever putting the trust of my child's safety in a church Yeah, because they don't always have the best outcome for your child. The other question I always ask is, do you think, because I think everybody has conflicting views on what to do with church after this. When, you know, the question I used to ask every episode, do you think there's hope for the church in how it deals with these situations? So stepping aside from all the questions that this kind of stuff raises about faith or about for an institution like the church, do you feel hopeful that there could be any kind of meaningful reformation of the church as an institution? Because we're seeing this in the Southern Baptist Convention, Independent Baptist, Catholic, and it seems like the one place it should be the safest isn't. Right. Do you have any hope with these conversations that something could change? Or do you think it's something that's just... That's so hard for me because I feel like people say, well, it's not God that did it. It was man. It yeah. wasn't the church. And that's fair. But it's the people that are supposed to know them the most. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But also, like, they'll say if you were going, if you were on a football team, there could be those kind of yeah. people on football teams. But it's not somewhere, and this is my biggest argument, it's not somewhere where you're putting your faith into something. Mm-hmm. They're in a, a leadership position to help you be a better person, to help yeah. direct you in what you should do in life situations. So when you take on that responsibility, I absolutely think you're different than a normal person who has the ability to impact or hurt a lot of people because you're in a position of leadership. You can destroy someone's spiritual well-being. That's the thing is it's such a strange argument to me because I get it all the time, public schools and this and Hollywood, but the church on the other hand will say in the pulpit, we're not like Hollywood or we're not like this. And we've got this radical transformation. And that's for me speaking to my own, I don't even like saying buzzwords, deconstruct or whatever. But speaking of my own experiences, that's what I struggle with the most is that there's this claim of moral superiority in every other category until something happens in the church. And then it's what well, it happens everywhere. When everything else has been preached, we're different. We're set apart from everybody else. So, true. so for me, that's where I struggle to reconcile. Why are you just like Hollywood? Like, sure. why is the pastor and Harvey Weinstein one and the same when one same? claims, yes. at least Harvey Weinstein didn't claim spiritual so, <laughs> authority. Yes, but that's a question I don't think we're 200 episodes in. I don't think we'll answer yeah. today, but it's hard. And that's why I like the, the question, though, because I'm always curious what people think. Like, sure. if they're hopeful, if they're not. But yeah, that's a deep question, but I, I don't know. And I think yeah. that it's, I'm hoping, mm-hmm. I hope that there could be yeah. you know, that, that church, but I've been to a lot of churches and I've seen this situation happen so many times yeah. personally with friends, family. And so slightly different forms across exactly. different places, big churches that I had a lot of respect for big churches that if they are going to, if they're hiding it, then. You know, how is everyone else not hiding it too? If any change is going to happen in the church or even in the lives of people, I think if any people that have been through similar experiences, which again, every time I do these episodes, somebody messages me and says, that's exactly my story. I'm glad someone shared it. I think the only way that stuff's going to happen is by people doing what you're doing, which is sharing your story and being open about 
how it affected you, yeah. how it, how teachings you were under affected you and experiences changed you for better or for worse. So thank you for sharing your story. Thanks yeah. for listening for so long and uh, choosing to get on the microphone. I know it's intimidating and scary because when I started, it was super intimidating and scary, but it really means a lot to me. And I know it will for people listening as well. Thanks, Eric. And thanks for doing this for people like us and helping us tell our story because there are a lot of people who have very similar situations that are too scared to speak out about. And having this platform is really awesome because if one person can maybe open their eyes and realize that the church isn't as flawless as you portray it to be in your mind and that you still have to watch your kids the church isn't going to have their best interests at all times. So just make parents more aware and make people be cautious of what they're saying when they're on national TV about people whenever the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. So thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.